It'll be great having Julia back. Can't believe how much I miss her. Welcome to Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, the Max original series inspired by the life of Julia Child. It is so nice to be back. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, and I'm the founder of Cherry Bomb Magazine and the Radio Cherry Bomb Podcast, where I report on some of the most interesting women in the world of food, including trailblazers just like Julia. You have no idea what it's been like here without you. One girl in a sea of men. Julia, we have so much work to do. Season two of Julia is officially underway. And for the next several weeks, I'll be dishing with creatives from the show, as well as special guests to give us a little perspective and food for thought. We'll be kicking things off with Julia creator and executive producer, Daniel Goldfarb. Daniel will tell us why change is a central theme this season, who the new cast members are, and what it was like shooting on location in Provence and Paris. We still have a book to write, and Judith will be here in a few days. I've been a lotus eater all spring, intoxicated by France. Today's other guest is Chef Eric Repair of Le Bernardin in New York City, one of the most celebrated and respected chefs around. Like Julia, Eric is a best-selling author, and his latest book, his eighth, is titled Seafood Simple. Eric actually met Julia several times and is going to share some of his memories including that time Julia had some very interesting feedback after eating at Bernadin. You're absolutely right. That French chef of yours is really something. If you haven't watched episode one yet, my advice is to check it out before you listen to these interviews. Just as too many cooks spoil the broth, I do not want to spoil Julia for you. For those who need a refresher, season one of Julia ended with Simca Beck, Julia's co-author with whom she has a love-hate relationship, inviting Julia to Provence, where they can cook together and work on the follow-up to their best-selling book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Simca is played wonderfully by Isabella Rossellini, and Julia, of course, is played by Sarah Lancashire, who I am sure you agree does an incredible job of embodying the icon. Well, Julia has taken Simca up on her offer. Season two opens with the two of them in a picturesque farmer's market. They cook together at Simca's home and work on the book, but old issues resurface. Julia wants to update French classics for the modern American housewife, while Simca wants to go the traditional route. Undeterred, Julia brings Simca to a restaurant run by a young Paul Bocuse, a real-life French chef who influenced an entire generation of culinary superstars. Julia is enthralled by his Lou en croute, which is a filleted piece of fish steamed inside a brioche crust and plated tableside, in this case with a simple tomato and shallot sauce. To Simca, this fish dish served with no butter or cream is bland and uninteresting. To Julia, the simplicity is new and daring. All that theater for a piece of steamed fish. (laughs) If this is the future, Julia, count me out. Meanwhile, back in the States, life somehow goes on without Julia. Avis DeVoto, played by B.B. Newworth, has a new job. Blanche Knopf, played by Judith Light, is pretty wretched to Judith Jones, played by Fiona Glascott and Alice Naiman, played by Brittany Bradford, continues to fight the boys' club. Why are you smiling? We're an endangered species, Ralph, old boy. We play golf with the boss twice a month. We're fine. The winds of change smell like Chanel Number no. 5, fellas. Now let's welcome our first guest, Daniel Goldfarb, the creator and executive producer of Julia. And since we haven't really spoken at all in the 72 days since you've been gone, any tiny hints you can give me about what you're thinking for season two? Daniel Goldfarb, welcome back to Dishing on Julia. It's so nice to be back. 
All right, so season two is back. This is a big question, but how is season two different from season one? It's a good question. I think the heart of the show hasn't really changed, and the sort of point of view of the world and the sort of aspirational optimism of Julia is still very much a part of the show. But the show has expanded. When we started season one, we were really focused on Julia, and slowly over the course of the season, we became more and more invested in the other characters in the show. But now I feel... We're invested in all of them as much as we are in Julia. And now all of them have adventures to go on that somehow through their interactions with Julia has awoken each and every one of them in sort of new and exciting ways. So the show has sort of expanded in that way. It's still Julia, but you really get to go on adventures with all of the characters. And then in terms of Julia herself, she's in a different position than she was a year ago. You know, she she has the things she wanted. And she has some clout and some power, and she has to figure out what to do with it. And it's more complicated than she thinks it is. She makes some mistakes in season two, and she's learning in a different way. She's not learning how to make a television show the way she was learning in season one, but she's learning now how to sort of handle being a public figure, both with her near and dear and with people at work and with the world at large. Any new characters or historical figures that we can look forward to in season two? We have a bunch. So we have some new sort of recurring characters. We have a love interest for Avis. The actor's name is Danny Burstein. The character's name is Stanley Lipschitz. And he won the Tony Award last year for Moulin Rouge. And he's sort of a Broadway legend. But there's a new director at WGBH at the end of season one. Hunter talks about hiring some more women, and Rachel Bloom plays that part, and she's just incredible, and it was great to get to know her. James Beard comes back, and John Updike comes back. We have some others. You know, I think the audience got such a kick out of it last season that we kind of leaned into it more this season, but I don't want to give them away. But we have some really, really fun historical characters show up in episode one. And we got Stockard Channing is with us and Hannah Einbinder is with us. And yeah, just we have really, really some... And if you love New York theater, we have all these amazing New York theater actors that pop up in every episode. So lots to look forward to in that way. Season two is a treat for the theater nerds, just like season one was. Uh Well, you are a theater baby. You told me something so interesting that I hadn't put together. You said as a playwright, you spend a lot of time writing interior scenes of people talking to each other. Yes. So it's my natural impulse to sort of do interior scenes. And it's also very, very Julia. Like when you think of Julia, you think of her at a restaurant, you think of her in a kitchen, in her kitchen especially, or on the French chef set. So it's something that our directors, they get the scripts and they're always looking at them and trying to figure out how do we get outside. And then especially... And you're trying to, you're trying yeah. to keep everyone inside around the table. Yeah. And then especially when we, we were in France. So we, you know, the first three episodes are shot in France and it was so gorgeous and we just wanted to show France. So we did a few cheats. Like when we go to Paul Bocuse's restaurant, it's an outdoor restaurant. So it was not an outdoor restaurant, but we made it an outdoor restaurant so we could show the majesty because we were at Cap Tib and it was so incredible. We tried to find ways of taking interior scenes and making them exterior scenes. Even though they are sitting around a table, there's nothing stationary or static about those scenes. Well, we have Christine Tobin, our food stylist, and we have the food. So there's always these incredible shots of the food. And then John Dunn, who's costumed everyone so colorfully and so vibrantly, who really took his cue from Julia and is really like going wild with color, all the characters. And the characters are full of life. 
When you do the research about Julia and Julia and Paul, they really did live life to the fullest and were loud and joyful and witty and effervescent. So it's never just kind of like people, you know, sitting at a table on their phone checking, you know. <laughs> so, like, it, it's people really engaged and it's people talking, you know, not from the neck up that are just with their whole bodies, like, feeling things. And so I agree. I don't think it does feel stationary, even when it is. When we spoke about season one, you told me about Amadeus and how much that movie meant to you and that that was a real sort of guiding light for what you did with the first season. Was there anything that was a guide for you for season two? So I would say we leaned into that even more so. Amadeus is a play that was turned into an Academy Award-winning movie by Peter Schaffer about Mozart. It's about his relationship with Salieri, who was at the time the most famous composer in the world. And now here we are all these years later, and no one knows who Salieri is, and everyone knows who Mozart is. And Peter Schaffer had the idea of, like, why is that? So he did a lot of research, and he invented a story about Mozart's relationship with Salieri. A lot of people say, well, it's not true, that's not what happened. But then when he was interviewed, when the movie came out, he said, the way history is recorded isn't necessarily the way it happened. And I did a lot of research, and I stand by this. I stand by that this could have happened. I'm not saying it did happen, but I think the psychological truth of it has integrity, and I stand by the choices I made. So we sort of felt like, so if Amadeus is the fable version of Mozart's life, we always say we're doing the Amadeus version of Julia's life. But we're hoping the sort of bright, magical story we're telling is true to the heart and soul of Julia, even if it's not true literally to biographical events in her timeline. You know, Chris sometimes talks about the show being a fable about Julia Child. Chris Kaiser. Chris Kaiser, who's my, my partner on all of this. And the truth is, we have access to a lot of information about Julia, and we've absorbed a lot of it. I've read multiple biographies. I've read multiple interviews. I've watched all of The French Chef. I've seen a lot of her talk show appearances. And everything we do on the show is rooted in that research. And everything we do in the show, like, could have happened, though didn't necessarily happen as we've dramatized it. That's a real fine line you have to walk, though, between fact and fiction. And some people come to the show expecting it to be a documentary. Right. And they shouldn't. <laughs> but the truth is, now that I've done it and I've watched a bunch, I don't think we're any different than The Crown. I don't think we're any different than a lot of shows that are based on historical figures. To Sarah Lancashire's credit, like she's not doing an impersonation. She's doing an embodiment. Because we've slowed the story down, each season takes place, like season two takes place, I think, over half a year. Season one takes place over a year. So we have eight hours to tell one year of her life. You know, most biopics are an hour and 45 minutes and they tell a 30-year story. We don't have to just hit the sort of landmark moments of her life. We can talk about the moments that aren't in the biographies, but that are inspired by what we read in the biographies. And I think that's part of what makes Julia so satisfying, because those biopics make me crazy that they try to cram a whole life into two hours. Right. And the truth is, when I pitched Julia, Season two ends where we thought we were going to end season one. So we ended up slowing it down even more. 
originally we were just going to like skip after episode two where they do the pilot episode to the show being a hit already. And then we realized like, no, 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 like them figuring it out is part of the fun and building the set, learning how to prep the, all of that stuff is the how the sausage gets made of it. And seeing them in the editing room and seeing them in post-production and seeing them brainstorming and scripting and that all became part of the fabric of the show and we we had a lot of fun with it. And we didn't go any further in season two. We thought maybe we would go beyond what we originally thought, but we didn't. So we're ending season two where we thought we were going to end season one. I remember last season, Melanie Mayron describing the cooking scenes as the closest thing you have to a car crash. Yeah. I mean, they're... And the insert shots, and the, I mean, they're, they're hard to film. They take real time to get them right. Now I'm actually so conscious every time I watch anything, not just Julia, whenever a character is eating, how many takes, how many setups are there? Like, And then I just start thinking, oh, my God, that person ate 12 hamburgers to shoot this scene or whatever. You know, you become really aware of, of how eating scenes are shot because that's such a huge part of our show. And our actors have to sort of like prep for it. Like in episode two, I think, they go to the green market and Judith buys some cheese and she's tasting the cheese. And we shot that scene like 20, 30 times. And I started physically feeling sick and like worried. Like I was literally worried about Fiona (laughs) because when we rehearsed it, it was funny that she ate so much cheese. And I was like, but wait a minute, we're going to have to shoot this a lot. Are you sure you want to take that many bites of cheese? And then she just, she went for it, which was great. I mean, she felt it, I think, for literally for days. Would love to talk to you about something more serious about the show. The show fictionalizes parts of Julia's life while drawing parallels to contemporary cultural themes. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? You know, we're watching this period piece, but it feels very modern in terms of these themes you're touching on. I think if you're going to tell a period piece, you want it to feel modern. You want it, you don't want the show to feel like it could have been written and, and made in the time that it takes place. You want it to feel like it's a 20, 23 lens looking back at a time. You're going to have a show And you're going to get to say something to the world. You're going to have eight hours to say something. What do you want to say? And then think about that, what you want to put out in the world, and then figure out how Julia can put that out in the world. When we open our writer's room, you know, Chris is brilliant. Our whole team of writers, they're, they're all really, really brilliant, interesting people. And we spend a month just talking and talking about the world through the lens of Julia, but all the changes taking place in the 60s. We obviously talk a lot about marriage. We talk a lot about the women's movement. We talk about a lot of social justice movements that were happening in the 60s. We talked about aging We talked about celebrity. We talked about public television. And then we were talking about what was going on in the world right now. So, like, we have a birth control storyline that I'm really proud of. And But it was, you know, we were definitely thinking about the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade. And all of that was on our minds and weighing on us. And we wanted to somehow write about what we were feeling through the lens of these pre-Roe characters. So that's an example But that's, I think, the most exciting part about writing a period piece, which is sort of using that time period as a lens to talk about the world that you're actually experiencing in the present. So in the show, you talked about slowing things down, but the world intrudes. There's so much change going on in the world around Julia and Paul and and their friends and the crew and everyone. Talk about change. That's such a big theme. 
season two. Yes, for sure. I mean, before we opened our writer's room, I went to L.A. and Chris and I spent a week together just talking. We had, again, lots of biographical information that we knew we wanted to do. We wanted to do the White House and we wanted to do this dinner party. That's the second episode. And we wanted to do the Luan Crute and all from the research. But then it was like, what are we saying? What is the show about? What is the theme? And the theme couldn't be the same theme as the themes that we were exploring in season one. And we thought about the 60s and we thought about change. And we thought Julia's arc is, it's a slightly more interior arc than it was last year because it it really is Julia navigating change. And on the one hand, she wants to be on the side of change. And on the other hand, she likes things the way they are and she doesn't want things to change. And change is scary. And she sort of goes back and forth over the course of the season, which, you know, to what I was saying earlier in terms of her being conflicted and her not always being right about everything is, I think, very human and and I think makes her even more lovable. And then ultimately she comes to a a decision about change, and I'm sure you can probably guess (laughs) where she lands on it. But that became the arc of the season. And because that time in this country was a time of so much change, it was really easy to use everything that's going on in the world, again, through the lens of Julia and, and her her little coterie. I love the scene when she and Simka go to the Paul Bocuse restaurant and Julia orders the Luan Crout, the famous fish dish. And I felt like you were making such a statement about the old and the new. And somehow the Luan Crout represented change and change that Julia was ready to embrace and Simka was not. That's exactly right. In the research, we discovered that Julia and Simka went to Paul Bocuse's first restaurant before he was in Lyon, before he was a Michelin three-star chef and probably the most famous chef in the world and one of the fathers of Nouvelle Cuisine. He had a, a small restaurant in Nice. It is less grand than the, than the way we've dramatized it, and it wasn't outdoors. That's where that comes from, and that it, it sort of... Julia, who's, you know, mastering is so rooted in traditional French cooking, and all of a sudden she tries something and it's new and it's different and it's lighter, the preparation is different, the sauce is different, the experience is different, it's visually different, and it's really exciting to her. But it also sort of puts her in a little bit of a crisis, which is like, Simka, we do this thing, but food is changing and it's moving. And what do we do? Do we hold on to the way it's been made, the Escoffier model of the way it's been done for 100 years? Or do we move forward and do we embrace the sort of creativity and the ingenuity of someone like Paul Bocuse? And that is the sort of, you know, it's, it's in the first episode and that becomes like the metaphor for the whole season. It is a really important moment in the show and a really important moment for Julia. That's a lot to put on one fish dish, Daniel. (laughs) We've talked about a lot of the fun things when it comes to making Julia. You did have to deal with a heat wave while you were over in France. Yeah. So when we got to France, it was like 110 degrees every day. It was the COVID capital of the world at that time. The most gorgeous French chateau you've ever seen that we shot in did not have air conditioning. The cicadas were so definitely loud. We were worried that we were going to have to, like, in ADR, loop entire scenes. But somehow it all just looks, I mean, it was idyllic. Like, it was magical. But were you freaking out before you headed over there? I mean, were you looking at your weather app nonstop? Like, I cannot believe this. 
I didn't, you know, there were things I just didn't think about. I just assumed there was air conditioning in the house. You know what I mean? Like, there were things that I, I thought, oh, it'll be hot. Who cares? We'll be fine. You know, like, it's summer clothes. It takes place in the summer. But, yeah, it was oppressively hot. We had a limited number of days in France. And then we had we had to get back to Boston on us. The scheduling of that was really tricky. But we got pretty lucky and we we made it. We did it. So that was nerve-wracking, especially at the beginning. That never occurred to us that we would be like in this hot spot. And then in France, you know, that was just a little bit stressful. But somehow we got lucky and we made it through. I absolutely love episode one. What is your favorite moment? So I think my favorite moment is when Julia tastes the Luan Crute. You know, you talked about how we spoke about Amadeus last year, and that's what we wrote right into the script, that when she tastes it, it's like when Salieri hears Mozart for the first time. And the way Melanie directs it, like the camera spins around her and it gets really close on her face, and you just see, like, the world has changed for her. And it's just such an incredible performance. Sarah is so wonderful in it. It feels like deep and profound, and it's really funny also because it's, it's, you know, she's eating a piece of fish, <laughs> and she somehow, like, she conveys all of it in that moment, and I think it sort of encapsulates the whole season in a way in that one moment, so I love that moment. Last question. Julia's coming over for dinner. What would you make her? So the thing that I've been making a lot recently, and I think Julia would like it, it's like one of the New York Times sheet pan recipes. Sheet pan chicken with jammy tomatoes or something it's called. But it's so beautiful. And we have this, like, plate with lemons. Anyway, I think Julia would really like it. The flavors are very Provence. And we serve it with a baguette with salted French butter. And we serve it with a nice, simple salad. And I feel like Julia would love that. I got to meet, because of you, Claudia Fleming, and I've made her chocolate caramel tart, which is, it's doable. I thought it was going to be impossible, and I got it, like, first time out. I think Julia would like that chocolate oh, caramel tart. Claudia Fleming, one of the country's most famous pastry chefs. She's fabulous. Daniel, thank you so much. Season two is delightful. I'm so thrilled you're all back. Oh, thank you. We'll be talking to Daniel again later in the season. Next up, an actual French chef and one of the most respected around. It's Eric Repair of New York City's Le Bernardin, which has received countless accolades over the years, including three Michelin stars. Eric joins me to talk about his most memorable encounter with Julia, and we chat about his specialty and his brand new cookbook, Seafood Simple. Eric Repair, welcome to Dishing on Julia. Thank you very much for having me. Eric, let's jump right in. Everyone knows Julia Child as the French chef, but you are an actual French chef. Can we verify that? Yes, I am, actually. <laughs> yes. Raised in France and did my studies in France. Where did you grow up? I was born in Antibes. I grew up most of my childhood in the French Riviera, Provence. When I was age 11, my mother moved to Andorra, which is a small country between France and Spain. Then I did my culinary school at 15 in Perpignan, the south of France. Moved to Paris after graduation. I was 17 and started my career in uh, La Tour d'Argent in 1982 when they were celebrating 400 year anniversary of the restaurant. Did you say 400? 400. <laughs> That's incredible. Let's go back a little bit. When did you know you wanted to be a chef? My entire life, I wanted to be the chef that I am today. Age four or five. I was passionate by eating good food, of course, and always in the kitchen of my mother and grandmothers. Very different style of cooking. I had a grandmother from North 
north part of Italy and one from Provence, cooking soul food from their own region. And my mom was extremely influenced by nouvelle cuisine and the generation of chefs like Paul Bocuse and Michel Gerard. And I was eating those very elaborate meals at home where my mother, who was actually a, a business lady, was waking up at 5 a.m. on the morning to make sure that we have a lunch and a dinner with appetizer, main course and dessert that were different every day of, of the week. It's really tough to, to do that. But I had the passion for eating and then later on I had the passion for cooking and I wanted to be the chef that I am today, the chef of Le Bernardin. I wanted to have a beautiful dining room with a lot of waiters to create an experience. Of course, a beautiful kitchen with all the equipment, all the most beautiful products that you can find and a lot of cooks everywhere to be able to, to work with me as a team and create the vision that I have. And it happened. So 15, you go to culinary school. 17, you go to Paris yep. and start working in kitchens there. I'm imagining kitchens back then in Paris were not easy places. No, it was very tough, especially um, in fine dining. Well, I think everywhere the kitchens were a, a very difficult world. It was a lot of verbal abuse, a lot of physical abuse, being kicked in the butt and they would punch you in the shoulders and throw plates at you and things like that. And glorifying basically abuse, which is a huge mistake and not acceptable at all. But at that time, it was almost glorified. And chefs were small dictators that could do whatever they want and terrify the staff. And the philosophy supposedly was, we're going to take young people, we're going to break them psychologically and bring champions in them. In that process, we were losing so much talent. When you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. And, and it's no excuse for having an abusive attitude uh, in any place. What you describe sounds like the military, and you did do military service. Yes, military service actually felt like a vacation. Although I didn't really understand the purpose of what I was doing with them, which was to clean one side of the the plaza where we had leaves in the fall and bring them to the right side and then bring them back to the left side or carry stones in my bag. That I didn't really understand. But the military were very, very rigid and tough, but they were not abusive. It was a lot of discipline. I didn't see any officer being abusive. It was tough, but again, structured. In a kitchen, it was tough, but it was no, not necessarily a structure. The chef was an angry person who had the right to do anything he wants. So shocking. In many kitchens, not all of them, mm -hmm. many, many of them. So you leave France, you come to Washington, D.C. Why yes. D.C.? Washington, D.C., because Joël Robuchon, one of my mentors, sent me to Jean-Louis Paladin at the Watergate Hotel, and I have a job there. And Julia spent time in D.C. She was a very good friend with Jean-Louis Paladin. They had a very good relationship. You're in D.C. for a little while. Why do you leave and come to New York? I come to New York because D.C. is boring and New York is happening. Well, when you are a young person and you want, you want to party on the weekend, it's not the ideal place. But also New York had a lot to offer. I mean, it was, it's still happening today. I mean, New York reinvents itself all the time, but it brings all the talent from all over the world. And in a culinary world, David Boulet was really doing extremely well and was a lot of chefs doing very creative stuff. Le Bernardin was also one of the famous restaurants in New York at the time with Le Cirque and many others. I started to work with David Boulet as his sous chef 
And then a bit later, I had this offer at Le Bernardin to become the chef de cuisine of Gilbert Lecoz. And in 1991, I started at Le Bernardin. What did they do to entice you over to Le Bernardin? They didn't do much because on the beginning, they contacted me and I said, I am not interested by the position. <laughs> and then Jean-Louis Paladin said, you crazy. This is an amazing opportunity. Why you say no? And I had my, my, my justifications at the time. Uh, but it took quite some time for me to say yes. And then the minute I walk into Le Bernardin to work, it was on June 10 at 7.40 a.m. I look at my watch because I felt something was, I don't know, out of the ordinary. And I was right. My sixth sense was telling me that Le Bernardin will be an important part of my life, professional life. And it absolutely has been. Today, Le Bernardin is a Michelin three-star restaurant. Yes. And one of the most highly regarded restaurants in New York City, if not the world at large. We definitely strive for excellence, and we are lucky to be rewarded by the New York Times and by the Michelin and many, many other media. And we are grateful, and we celebrate those awards, but the day after, we, we forget about it completely, and we go back to what we are supposed to do, which is work hard in creating an experience that is very special for our clients. So tell us a little bit about Le Bernardin for those who haven't had the good fortune to visit. Le Bernardin opened in Paris in 1972. Brother and sister, Maggie Lecoz, Gilbert Lecoz. She's in a dining room, he's in a kitchen. They moved to New York in 1986. They had a two-star at the time in Paris, closed the restaurant in Paris completely, start again in New York, and right away gets a four-star in the New York Times. Three months after the opening is the first time that it happens in the history of the Times. I joined a few years later in 1991. Gilbert Lecoz unfortunately passed away in 1994, so three years after I started. And I stayed with Maggie Lecoz, who's my business partner. And we're living the dream. We are very successful. The restaurant is busy. We are rewarded all the time. And it's something that we don't take for granted. We appreciate it. And it's giving us the opportunity to create and to be innovative and to reinvent ourselves and to teach people what we have accumulated over the years and so on. And I, and I love it. It's my, it's my passion. It's a lifestyle. Eric, unlike many of your peers, you've focused exclusively on Le Bernardin. I mean, I know you've had some projects like your cookbooks, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But so many people expand their restaurant yes. empires. You have focused on Le Bernardin like it's the very special diamond that it is. Yes. I came into the field of cooking because I had the mentality of an artisan, not necessarily of a businessman. And I learned how to become a businessman because you have to manage a restaurant and you have to be sustainable financially. And, and it's very important. But I have tremendous pleasure to be with my team and to be in a kitchen or in a dining room and interact with our clients. And I feel that I am in control of what I'm doing there. And I'm not a control freak. <laughs> That's not what I am. But I like to be with them. And again, it's an interaction and it's a world that I love. I had actually at one point, I tried to develop and open a few restaurants, one in Washington and one in Philadelphia. And, and I really was not having it not happy about it at all. I was not at Le Bernardin, which I love to be, and it didn't please me. So I stopped immediately and I said, it's not for me. Now, my friends who have a lot of restaurants probably will be bored to death with one restaurant. And if I had all the 50 restaurants that they have, I would go nuts. <laughs> so, But when uh, you talk to them, they all say they wish they had one restaurant. They say that to yeah. me, yes. 
One of your creative outlets is cookbooks, similar to our friend Julia Child. Yes. And your eighth cookbook is out right now. It's called Eric Repair Seafood Simple. It is a gorgeous book. Thank you. Why this book? And tell us how it connects to La Bernadette. I think I have accumulated a lot of cooking wisdom and, and knowledge about seafood over the years. Uh, in between my experiences before Le Bernardin and, of course, being the chef that I am at Le Bernardin, I wanted to create this cookbook to demystify how to cook seafood. When I speak to people, very often I hear, oh, I am in- intimidated, I don't know, it's so difficult, or I don't know if I really like seafood, it's too fishy for me, and many stories. And I was like, seafood is not fishy when it's fresh. It doesn't smell like fish, it doesn't taste strong. It's very delicate, and it's it's very great in terms of flavors, and it's the ultimate delicacy, actually. We have created a book that is almost almost idiot-proof. <laughs> You cannot miss if you really follow our directions. And the recipes are very simple for many reasons. But the main reason is that seafood is so delicate. The more you put in a plate and the more you elaborate and the more you lose the soul of the fish to enhance the quality and, and make the f- seafood the star of the plate, you have to be very cautious at being simple and precise, of course. Amazingly, you have a recipe in here for a dish that you served Julia Child. So you've met Julia a few times. I met Julia a few times, yes. Can you tell us about one of the times she was in your dining room at La Bernadette? Sure. It was probably 1992 or something like that. And we had a seared tuna salad. So the tuna was coated with herb de Provence, seared, served very, very rare, sliced very thinly almost like a, a sashimi style. So the tuna was warm, but very rare. And we were serving it with um, salad and black truffle vinaigrette. And I was happy to cook for Julia, of course. And at the end of the, the meal, I went to see her and she spoke to me and she said to me that she had a good meal, but I forgot to cook the tuna. And I scratched my head and I was like, what is she talking about? <laughs> I didn't understand. The seared tuna salad was supposed to be extremely rare. And it, it was a cultural difference. And I went back from the dining room in the kitchen, scratching my head. I was like, oh, my God, I'm sorry. I didn't please the Julia Child. But that was my intention to serve it like this. So anyway, it was a bit of a misunderstanding. You can also make a confession right now. You didn't necessarily always understand what Julia was telling you. No, because first of all, I didn't really speak English. She had a certain way of articulating her speech, and she had a very high pitch also with her voice. And I was terrified to go see her all the time because she would say, that's the way I perceived it at the time. And I was like, what is she saying? And I didn't know what to answer. So I was very, very scared of her in that aspect. Eric, do you have some perspective on why Julia was so big and beloved at the time? I mean, chefs were thrilled when she came to their restaurants. Yes. She was a very warm person. She loved, except for my tuna salad, but she loved food. (laughs) And she was very enthusiastic. And she was promoting the world of the chefs and the world of the restaurant. And the chefs were creating those relationships with her. And it was very nice to have someone like her, also as a French chef or French cook, to have someone who loves so much my culture. French cooking, who had so much knowledge, who had done so much for French cuisine in this country. So that's why she was the most beloved person in the media at the time. It's so interesting when you 
mentioned that Le Bernard Dan was very avant-garde at the time to be serving dishes like that. And I'm sure everyone who's watched the first episode immediately thinks of the scene in Paul Bocuse's restaurant. She's with Simka. They're served the Luan Crute, and it just blows Julia's mind. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that dish. So the loup, loup means wolf in, in French. So it's loup de mer, wolf of the sea. But it's a very delicate fish. Paul Bocuse did it with puff pastry, and it was presented at the table, and it was prepared table-side by the waiters. What is very interesting about this recipe is that they use a technique that I believe they invented at the time, which was to remove the skin of the fish with a very sharp knife, then to cover the fish with the puff pastry and bake it. When the puff pastry will be cooked and fluffy and crunchy, the fish will be cooked at the same time and the waiters will cut it at the table. You wouldn't have the skin in between the puff pastry and the flesh. It was flesh, puff pastry, and you could eat it at the same time. And it, it is still today remarkable because it's nothing more satisfying than this recipe. And he was serving it with a beurre blanc, and they still keep serving that dish that is a signature and a, and a classic. And it's always perfectly done there. So it's something very special. Have you ever made a Luan Crout like that? Not at Le Bernardin, because we uh, have a different style of cooking. And we do cooking that is much simpler in a sense and doesn't require to be table side because I'm not necessarily um, a fan of table side. So table side isn't really popular today, but back in the day, a lot of restaurants did table side. Yes. Well, before Nouvelle Cuisine, everything was served on platters. Either way, the waiters were go going to the table with the platter and you were serving yourself. Or it was prepared table side, which means it was finished table side. Either way, flambé or the sauce was made on the front of you, or they were slicing on the front of you, plating. But then with Nouvelle Cuisine, it started in the late 60s, 70s. One day at the restaurant Trois Gros in Rouen in, in Burgundy, the chef said, you know what? I'm in control of my food. I'm plating my, my own food. Not the waiters anymore, because I know exactly the way I want to to create not only the decoration of the dish, but the dynamic and the f I want the flavor to be a certain way. And nobody knows better than I do. And that was a revolution. From that day on, chefs started to plate their food. And I'm very happy to have the control that I have in the kitchen by knowing exactly when I'm plating what the client will have. I do not necessarily want the waiters to try their best and and. I'm sure they do a good job, but it will never be the same as if it's the kitchen doing it. We're so used to the chef's vision today. It's so interesting to me that once upon a time, that wasn't the case. It wasn't the case. Tell us a little bit about Paul Bocuse. Now, you never worked for him, but he was a hero of yours. Yes. Actually, if I am in this field, if I am today, the chef that I am today is also because of Paul Bocuse, because he had a cookbook called La Cuisine du Marché, the cuisine of the market, and that cookbook became worldwide a bestseller everywhere all over the planet probably one of the most sold cookbook and i was fascinated by it and instead of studying after school i would read the recipes and i would read the entire book night after night after night and other cookbooks but he inspired me so much that i had bad grades and <laughs> i couldn't stay in school actually and it was a huge opportunity for me to go to culinary school, which was considered a vocational school. 
And I started my career because of him by accident as well. And I admire him because he has been an incredible ambassador for not only French cuisine, but for great food, great dining experience. Paul Bocuse is an icon. He will never be replaced. I wonder if he and Julia ever met. Probably in heaven. Now they are together. But uh, in real life, I am sure they met. That's a nice thought. Why do you think Julia endures? In life, you have good food and bad food. She was the greatest ambassador of good food, good lifestyle, and she inspired people at the time. She was extremely charismatic. She had an incredible personality. She was very inspirational. And, and today, she's still very much with us, with that legacy that she, she left us behind, which is her cookbooks and TV shows that we can always look at the originals. But it's very inspiring to see movies on her and TV series. It's refreshing in, in, in many ways to see that it was not too long ago, and she revolutionized our world. Eric, Julia is coming over for dinner. What do you serve? So Julia is coming for dinner. I'm giving her my tuna salad again, and I will cook it more, but not well done. We will have a great discussion together, and we will have a glass of wine. At the end, she will like my tuna salad. <laughs> and that will be, um, yeah, my story. I love it. <laughs> what kind of wine would you serve with that? With a tuna salad, a good burgundy. That will be very nice, I think. And what do you think you two would talk about? We will speak about the tuna and about the fisherman who caught the tuna and how he caught it and where he caught it. And we will speak about the truffles that are in a salad and about the wine and the winemaker. And she will explain to me she has been to the winemaker already. And we will speak about the truffle that is in season. And she has been hunting for truffles with the dogs and the truffle hunters. And that will be the discussion we will have. And we will speak for a long time and have many glasses of wine, probably end up with a good chocolate dessert. And you will understand every word she says. Now I will understand. Yes. Absolutely. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate everything you've done for the food world and the world of hospitality at large. You are too kind. The real legend is Julia. Thank you. Thank you to Eric Repair and Daniel Goldfarb for joining us on Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, now streaming on Max. Dishing on Julia is produced by the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Special thanks to Stephen Toll and the team at CityVox. Our executive producers are Catherine Baker and Yasmin Nesbat. Our associate producer is Jenna Sadu, and our editorial assistant is London Crenshaw. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. We'd love for you to leave a rating and review for Dishing on Julia on your favorite podcast platform, and be sure to subscribe. Tell me in the review what you would serve Julia for dinner. Boeuf bourguignon, pizza, tuna sandwich? I'd love to know. In the meantime, leaving you with these wise words from Paul Child, as played by David Hyde Pierce. The only way to stop the world from passing you by is to do what you've always done. What's that? Walk two steps ahead of it. So that's what we'll do.